0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. where we continue our series, The Mysteries of the Kingdom today, with a message entitled, Belonging to Jesus. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, verses 42 to 50, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. In the year
1: 1746, Arguably, America's greatest preacher, Jonathan Edwards, published a book entitled Religious Affections. I know that seems like old literature, but I think this book is among the most valuable books ever produced on this continent. Well, Okay, what's the book about? Well, I know that in our day, we almost never use the word affections in everyday language. But the word means something like love or a strong liking for something. So according to Jonathan Edwards, an affection is a strong inclination and will of the soul. So, (laughs) let me see if I can say that in contemporary English. Affections are the things that you care about, the things you love, the things you're passionate about, the things you're ready to do something about. By entitling his book, Religious Affections, he meant to speak about those spiritual matters that inflame our passions. In the last part of the book, Edwards speaks about 12 affections, that if you have them, they're a true indicator that you're genuinely born again or saved. For instance, he speaks about being objectively grounded in the doctrines of Scripture. He speaks of an intense inner hatred of sin, of a genuine love for God, an interest in the things of God. He speaks of a change of nature, of the life of humility and of concern for others, and and so forth. Look, Edwards never said that we get saved by showing an interest in God. He said that when anyone is truly saved, they become passionate about God and and about the life of the Spirit. They have, in his words, religious affections. That's one of the reasons the book is important. It tells us what conversion looks like and helps us to know if we're genuinely saved. But earlier on in the same book, Edwards speaks about 12 signs that, that an individual might have that should give no assurance that we're saved. He means that there are things that might seem in us to be indicators of grace, but upon close examination, well, they're not. What's he speaking about? Well, for one, since Edwards was a key leader in the greatest revival on this continent, he saw plenty of people come under the power of God. And and when they did, people broke down in tears and some started to shake and they fell on the ground groaning. And this, said Edwards, is no sign of salvation. It might accompany salvation, but just because you exhibit these, what he calls bodily signs, does not mean we're necessarily saved at all. He gives other misleading signs. For instance, he says there are some in which almost supernaturally, scripture verses come to their minds. And this, he says, is not a sign that you're saved. Others might audibly begin to worship God, and yet they're not born again. See, in essence, Edwards says that you shouldn't assume that you're saved because you show external signs. Instead, true conversion, he said, is on the inside. It's a matter, he said, of the affections. True conversion is a matter of the heart, what the heart loves and what the heart hates. Was he right? Well, Edwards quoted from Luke 17, verse 20. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. And he argued that so many of us are so impressed by external and observable things. Instead, true conversion changes us from within, he said. Whereas once we loved sin and the delights of the flesh, but now there's been a change of heart. Christ's Spirit produced in us a new nature. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, a new heart is given. So, I mention this because not only do I think Edwards was right, but I also think he was expressing then, back in the 1700s, a matter that should still be important for us today. You see, many evangelicals believe that the sinner's prayer makes you a Christian even if the heart or the affections of the heart remain unchanged. You see, they put their assurance in things that can be observed, that is, in praying a prayer rather than the matter of a transformed heart. As an example of this, many of us even count conversions by how many hands were raised at an altar call rather than by how many confessed sins were baptized, followed Jesus, and received a new heart. You know, we've come to Matthew chapter 12, and I'll be reading what at first glance seems like a collection of unrelated events and sayings of Jesus, but a close reading will show the connection. So let's read our text, Matthew 12:42 to 50. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation." While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Well, you might wonder how these three texts relate to each other. In the first, Jesus compares himself with Solomon. Second, he talks about what happens to a demon-possessed person when the demon comes back. And third, he speaks a word to his mother and brothers. And you might wonder how it is that I began speaking about the signs which would indicate whether a man or a woman was truly saved or, or deluding himself or herself. How is that related to what I've just read? Well, hang in there and we're going to find out. But let's remember the context. Jesus is in a major dispute with the Pharisees. And remember, the Pharisees were regarded as the, the leading Bible teachers of their day. And according to Matthew 12:24, after casting out a demon from a man so that his blindness is healed, as well as being cured of muteness, the Pharisees charge that Jesus is able to do this by the power of Satan. And the debate leads to an ultimatum. The Pharisees demand that Jesus show a sign to prove he is of God. That is, they want him to demonstrate a great sign in the heavens. And in response, Jesus points out that the ancient and evil city of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, and they did it without a sign. And yet here in his day, with the blind seeing and the deaf hearing and the the lame walking and lepers cleansed and even the dead being raised, Something was being done in their day, so much greater than anything the men of Nineveh had ever seen. Indeed, the kingdom of heaven was tumbling into the present hour, and the Pharisees, unlike the men of that wicked city of Nineveh, they just weren't repenting. And with that, Jesus brings up the matter of Solomon. The queen of Sheba was a queen of what we now call Ethiopia. And she saw no sign from God, but had heard about Solomon's wisdom. And so she traveled about 4,000 kilometers to come and hear him. And yet, if you contrast the wisdom of Solomon with the wisdom of Jesus, I mean, think for a moment what Jesus had said when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Well, Jesus' wisdom outstrips that of Solomon. And yet, while the Queen of Sheba was drawn by wisdom, these Pharisees cared nothing about wisdom at all. They were religious, but their heart was unmoved towards God. To put it in Jonathan Edwards' language, they had proved their affections that they definitely were not the people of God. And with that, Jesus now turns to the matter of what happens when an unclean spirit passes out of a person. But how is that related to what's gone before? And what does that have to do with having a heart that desires the things of God? Now, before we answer that, you you might notice how interesting this story about the demons actually is. And the kinds of questions that it causes. I mean, for instance, I mean, why do demons go to waterless places? Are there a lot of demons out in the deserts of the world? And furthermore, what does it mean for the house to be empty? And why does Jesus add that not only is the house empty, but it's swept and put in order? I mean, what's he referring to there? And why does the demon bring back seven other demons? Why not six or five or, or eight? So if you heard me earlier on the subject of demons, you heard me say that that prior to Jesus, that is in the first Testament, no one was driving out demons then. They were charged not to be involved in idolatry, but no one was given the power to drive the demons out. But when Jesus came, Well, he changed all of that, so much so that he announced, as is recorded in Luke 11, verse 20, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's to say, each time that Jesus casts out a demon, he's giving evidence that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. The demons are fleeing. He's cleansing the land of demons. He's making the land holy. So for the first time in Israel's history, the demons are being routed. No one's ever seen that before. And since the entire area of Israel, because of her past idolatry had been infested with demons, Jesus is in fact making the land clean. And this would tell us that something significant was happening. So what does it mean for the house to be kept empty? Well, we'll talk about that.
0: April 28th to May 6th, 2019, We invite you to join Back to the Bible Canada on our 2019 Israel experience with Dr. John Neufeld, Phil Calloway, and special worship and musical artist, John Buller, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Touch, see, and experience the journeys of Paul and David and walk where Jesus walked. This will be a unique, intimate experience of Israel like no other. But time is running short and the guest list is near full. So if you've been planning on visiting Israel and seeing so many of the sites of the Bible, register today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visiting backtothebible.ca. And special note, we'll also be offering an optional and exclusive tour of Jordan immediately following the Israel experience accompanied by Dr. Newfeld. So call today and avoid any disappointment at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: So why is Jesus speaking about demons right here? I mean, after all, he's been rebuking the Pharisees who are standing at ground zero. They're seeing the mighty signs of the coming of the kingdom of heaven, and yet they will not believe. They have no religious affections. That is, their hearts are dead to God. They're unsaved men. They, they've allowed rules and regulations and human effort to replace a heart that's alive to God. Now, now, remember that Jesus has been saying that the queen of Sheba came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, but but here he was, greater than Solomon, and the Pharisees will not hear. And furthermore, Jesus has been not only driving demons out of individuals, he's been driving demons out of Israel. And so, properly understood, this section about demons is meant as a warning to the Pharisees, but also to everyone else who's listening to him at that moment. Because please note that while Jesus was arguing with the Pharisees, everyone's watching. That's because they all saw him drive out the demon from a man who was blind and mute. And they saw the reaction of the Pharisees, how how hateful and how vigorous their reaction was. So I can almost imagine Jesus now speaking both to the Pharisees and to the crowd about this demon-possessed man living in this demon-possessed land. And here's the question. What if in the process of cleansing the land of demons, Israel does not repent and get a new heart? What then? And individually, what happens when an individual man or woman is freed from the stranglehold of a demon but will not repent? What then? And Jesus tells us what then. Look again at verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Now, waterless places are places where where human beings don't live. And that's to say, when Jesus casts out an unclean spirit, he casts that demon to a place where they can't possess someone else. Notice Jesus is saying that the demons are only at rest when they're possessing someone, destroying a human life, devastating a culture. and That's horrifying, but it's true. In casting out demons, Jesus was banishing them from the place where they could rest. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's giving a simple analogy. If you kick a squatter out of a house and then leave the house stand empty, this guy is going to come back with his buddies who will reinforce his hold on that house so that you'll never kick him out again. And the same is true of demons. If you cast the demon out of a man or a woman and they do not now fill their house with God, love for him and of his word, the demon will come back with a vengeance. Demons don't give up their property easily. But the real reason Jesus is telling this story is not to tell us the habits of demons. Rather, notice the middle part of verse 45. It says, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now notice, even that is not the point of the story, although that in itself is horrifying. But notice the last sentence in verse 45, so it will be with this evil generation. That's to say, story of the demon-possessed man being repossessed is an analogy of what's going to happen to all Israel. Jesus didn't tell the story to help only one hapless individual, now in a worse state than before, but of an entire culture. Well, how so? You know, some suggest the analogy goes all the way back to John the Baptist. That's, you know, all Israel was repenting when he preached, but but they should have then welcomed Jesus as their Messiah, and since they did not, they're now far worse. Well, it sounds plausible, but I see problems with that interpretation. I mean, for one, the Pharisees came for repentance, but they were insincere, only biding their time until they could contradict John. John called them a brood of vipers. So, whatever is meant by sweeping the house clean. John had not accomplished that. I think the analogy deals entirely with the ministry of Jesus. He's been healing the sick and raising the dead and cleansing lepers and driving out demons, and and the kingdom of heaven had entered into the land, and the demons were running. But now comes the time for a decision. People rejoice with what Jesus is doing, but now he is being confronted by the Pharisees, and the people are about to make their own decision. Shall we follow Jesus or the Pharisees? See, they might be thankful that Jesus has kicked out the demons, and so Jesus was popular for that reason. But the religion of the Pharisees, well, that seems secure. Just do the rules and you'll be right with God. Go back to the second half of verse 44. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. That is, keeping the rules of the Pharisees gives order to the human life. But still the human life is empty. That is, God doesn't live there. Everything's external. Look, that happens to a great many people today. I know of people who have you know, a kind of a conversion and they've been delivered, let's say, from soul-destroying habits. Some have been healed of illnesses. Some have had relationships restored. And some of the same people, even if they go to church and seem to do all the right things, still have not awakened to God. They've not become alive to Him. They've not been overwhelmed by grace. They've never seen the loveliness of the Lord. The house is swept clean. The house is empty. And Jesus is saying, if that's you, please know that this story ends very badly. And why does the demon bring back seven? Well, the answer is that the number seven is either the number of perfection or of completion. The demon brings back, if you will, a perfect storm. This happened in Israel after Jesus had come and preached the kingdom of heaven. And after he had healed the sick and cast out demons, the nation did not repent. And so in A.D. 70, inspired by the demons, the Romans came and, and utterly destroyed the nation, driving them out of their homeland for, for 2,000 years. And there's a lesson here for all of us. If you seek an external observance of religion that includes keeping the rules and praying the right prayers at the right times, even if you know how to quote scripture, as Edward said, and weep at all the right times, but if you're not occupied by God, if you have not become humble and loving and filled with the goodness of God, if you don't know the reality of Christ within and the changing of your affections and trading out that heart of, of stone for a heart of flesh, well, then you're, you're empty and swept clean, but a host of demons is soon to descend on you. Well, the dispute with the Pharisees has now gone to places in which no one but Jesus would have anticipated. As I've said, there's been quite a crowd, and that brings us to the end of Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brother stood outside, asking to speak to him. So, please, don't read this as a benign request. It's not. In terms of Jesus' four brothers, listen to John chapter 7, verse 5. It says, For not even his brothers believed in him. Or listen to how Mark describes the family of Jesus. And here, I'm reading Mark three twenty to 21. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, They went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Now, in the case of Matthew 12, Matthew doesn't say that his family is then saying that he's out of his mind. Perhaps at this situation, they could see the hatred of the Pharisees and how Jesus was simply not backing off, but saying things that would surely get him killed. After all, he was saying that unless they repented and submitted to him as their Lord, all of them were going to be overwhelmed by a perfect storm of demons. And this, while it was outrageous, was also going to get him killed. And so they took their family prerogative and they requested to speak with him. Perhaps they could get him out of there. But then comes the amazing response. Verse 48, he says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? It sounds like he's almost disowning them. But then in verse 49, he says, looking at his disciples who have abandoned everything to follow him, here, here, he says, right here, these are my mother and my brothers. And then verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That's to say, I'm creating a new community in which family is secondary to the will of God. And this then is the true test of the follower of Jesus. You aren't a Christian because you're born in a Christian home or even because you were baptized. Baptized. You're a Christian as you bend your knee and call Christ Lord and God and surrender your life into his hands and he comes and occupies your house, your your life, and changes you from within and he takes up residence inside of you. That changes everything and that's what the Bible calls a new birth and that's what we need to desire from God. I wonder whether or not you might join me in praying to the Lord. You know, you might say, Lord Jesus, I've gone through all of the religious rituals and yet I remain the same. I think I now know what my problem is. I I have a heart of stone which is cold towards you. I don't know how to change this, dear Lord, but I'm asking you to come and change me from within. Change my heart, O God, so that I might love you and the things of God beyond my love for all other things. Indeed, Lord God, change me from within make me new on the inside. Oh, Heavenly Father, I repent of seeking my own way. Come, Lord Jesus, and make me your own. Amen.
0: John, this is an interesting message. Uh, I got to admit, I was taking some inventory as you were speaking. It's sort of like there's affections that I have, I think, for the world, perhaps. I'm not sure. But things I know that I'm still struggling with, that I haven't been able to pass over, uh, and, and it's almost a daily thing. Uh, how do I deal with that? How do how do I get over these affections?
1: Yeah, and, and that's true of every single true believer. We will all confess the same thing. Um, the person that refuses to confess that makes God out to be a liar, says John in 1 John. So, in that sense, we can take comfort by the fact that we're struggling with this. But I think... Um, These affections, um, you know, when anyone is in Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Everything has become new. So, the heart now loves other things, and yet... In our flesh, this is what Romans 7 is all about, we continue to fight with these you know, worldly desires that have not yet been put to death. And our job as believers is to put them to death. Now, here I think Edwards has helped us. Uh, Jonathan Edwards says, you know, the mark of a true believer is not that they never fall into sin. It's that they refuse to remain in sin. They'll, you know, if you fall into the same sin a thousand times, the mark of a believer is he gets up a thousand and one times. There it is.
0: Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The faithful, accurate teaching of the Bible impacts lives. Krista wrote, I came across Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfelt a few weeks ago when I was looking for biblical advice on a specific topic. And what a blessing this ministry has been ever since. I've listened to many podcasts, discovered In Doubt, and have recommended both to friends. I appreciate the faithfulness to biblical teachings, the depth of the teachings themselves, deep but explained in a way easy to understand. Back to the Bible is so appreciative to all those who help make the daily Bible teaching program happen. It's not one person, but thousands with a commitment to the importance of teaching God's word. Your gift, your prayers are critical. So please continue to support the program in your area so that others like Krista might grow closer in their walk with Jesus every day. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.